Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. For the last few months, I've been judging the Bailey Gifford Prize for non-fiction. The prize, one of the most important in the literary world, rewards excellence in non-fiction writing in the areas of current affairs, history, politics, science, sport, travel, biography, autobiography and the arts. For the judges, this meant reading around 60 hugely diverse books each to get to a long list of 12 rereading those 12 to produce a short list of six, and then finally coming up with a winner. We unanimously decided on that person a few days ago, and the prize has now been awarded to an extremely talented author. Catherine Rundle, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you so much for having me. Congratulations for your win with the book Super Infinite, The Transformations of John Donne. Thank you so much. It was a shock and a thrill. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we're actually recording this the morning after the prize dinner. Was it a late night for you? (laughs) Not too late. I was giddy with delight. It was a real, very genuine shock. I did not expect to win, in part because that shortlist was a staggering one. There were so many truly brilliant books. In particular, I loved Sally Hayden's book, The Fourth Time We Drowned. And so it was one of the greatest surprises of my life and and one of the best. (laughs) I remember speaking to you just before the announcement was made and thinking, I have to walk away from her. I'm going to let something slip by the set of my face or something. I thought your poker face was immaculate. (laughs) It was so joyous for all of the judges, though, because we were so absolutely set on your book. Many of us from the very, very beginning, it just absolutely shone out to us. And as you say, a completely stellar shortlist. But this book, absolutely towering above the rest. It just, yeah, it's luminous is what I have to say. And I'm sorry I'm gushing, but... (laughs) It is a a fabulous book. I am so thrilled. Now, you've been on this programme before, and at that time we talked a little bit about your background, but I'd like to go back to that just to understand who you are before we get on to this magnificent book. Now, you were born in England, in Kent, in fact, but then you spent 10 years in my hometown, Harare. So tell us about your your time in Zimbabwe. I I think it was one of the greatest, greatest strokes of luck of my life to have spent so much of my childhood there. Harare, as you know, is a glorious place to grow up. And I think one of the greatest things that it gave me was a sense of the living world, of wildlife, of growing things, of living things, being so close by. We spend a lot of our time outside and a lot of our time outside of Harare in you know, the various wildernesses. And the joy of that, the joy of having daily access to birds that are so beautiful they make you know english birds look like they're about to do a job interview you know the <laughs> the vibrancy of of the creatures that we were around was just staggering i wrote a book recently called the golden mole and other living treasure about animals and so much of that is born from this sense that to be in the presence of living things life does feel like true treasure you then went to university in england You went to St Catharines in Oxford. What happened after that? So I then took the All Souls Fellowship examination, which at the time was, I think it was 15 hours of examination stretched over three days. And two of the papers are on your specialist subject. So in my case, English literature. I wrote an essay on John Donne. Two of them are more general questions like, is it irrational to 
desire fame or do the characteristics of an orgy change if the participants are wearing Nazi uniforms. What's the answer to that? <laughs> yeah, case by case basis. So. <laughs> and then the final one, which we have since abolished, but it was still there when I did the exam, was a three-hour essay where everybody is given the same one word. Our word that year was novelty. And if you pass that exam, usually one or two people are given the fellowship every year, you get seven years of fully funded research time, which is just, especially then and now when time to spend among books is a very difficult thing to come by. That freedom that it gave me was absolutely, literally the most life-changing moment of my existence so far. And you've used that time incredibly well. I mean, you've been very, very productive. You're actually better known at the moment, although that's about to change, <laughs> as an author of children's books. So exactly. I wrote my first children's book when I was 21. And my hope is that I will be able to continue to do both adult writing and writing for children for the rest of my life because they both give unique and joyful forms of concentration. Although in some ways they're not that different. So I've written how many children's books? About 10, I would say, of which a couple are picture books. And some of the disciplines are the same. The discipline of condensation, of distillation, the discipline of does it matter? The discipline of vividness. There is a continuity there. Mm -hmm. And some of those books have picked up on your hobbies. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's true. Tell us about, because you've got some rather unusual (laughs) hobbies. So I wrote a book called Rooftoppers, which is about children who live up on the rooftops of Paris. And it's based in part of my love of climbing. And when I arrived at Oxford, I discovered the old tradition of night climbing. The most famous were the night climbers of Cambridge. Young people who would scale the buildings of Oxbridge, in part to see the beauty of those buildings up close and in part to see the city laid out beneath you. And I started climbing rooftops and then climbed up one of the towers of Battersea Power Station when it was being dismantled and up centre point so you could sort of stand on the top of a skyscraper at night in the wind and see the city lit below you. It is a very different way of seeing a city and it does make you love it. And is that done without safety equipment? (laughs) It is, but I make it sound much more dangerous than it actually is. I am not one of those incredibly impressive climbers who are sort of scaling like Spider-Man with just the grips of their fingers. I would only scale a building that has some form of scaffolding on it. And then the last bit of centre point was just a tiny little bit of a scramble. But if I had fallen, I would have fallen onto the scaffolding, not off centre point. I'm not doing anything whereby I would be likely to die. The worst would be like a shattered ankle and a very embarrassed phone call. (laughs) What about tightrope walking? That is another thing that happens in rooftoppers. When the children, they live on the rooftops and they jump from rooftop to rooftop. And when it's too far to jump, they stretch a wire between the rooftops. And I myself have been tightrope walking for quite a long time. I used to have a a low practice wire in my study in All Souls. It is the world's least useful skill. I mean, there has (laughs) never been, you know, an unbelievably niche emergency. But the reason I do it is it offers you a kind of focus, a kind of hush that falls on your mind when you walk a wire. But again, I I really wouldn't want to give the impression that I'm like Philippe Petit, you know, the man who who walked between the Twin Towers in 1977. You know, he was a 
a true genius at what he did. I am a very much someone who falls off a fair amount. I love the idea that you've got a practice wire in your study. It's just you've got to be the first fellow there ever. My students would sometimes come to my study and um it wasn't very obvious it was round to a side, but they did see it. And at the very end of term, I, I let them all have a have a go. They were quite good. <laughs> <laughs> now, yet another accomplishment is being able to fly a plane. <laughs> <laughs> so that, as you know from Zim, lots of farmers used to be able to fly aeroplanes. A lot of them were tobacco farmers. And that has now shifted. So these old airports outside of the city still exist, but they're essentially almost entirely deserted. And I used to go and fly at one of those, a little 1940s Piper Cub. And I was never good enough to, you know, I'm a long way from a pilot's licence. I don't see that happening anytime soon. But that was partly research for my book, The Explorer, which is about children who crash land in the Amazon rainforest. And one of the boys at the end flies an aeroplane up and out of the canopy to rescue them all. And... Again, like there is an alchemy to flying an aeroplane. When you, especially one of those small ones where you have the wind raging in your ears, this particular Piper Cub goes the same speed as a car. There's no sort of swooping through the landscape. You know, you can be overtaken by like a Toyota Corolla down on the motorway beneath <laughs> you. But the feeling of just a thin piece of metal and space. And because it's a very small plane, it's below, way below commercial aircraft, but above the birds. So... There's almost nothing, you're unlikely to hit anything. You have this sweep of sky, you have an enormous landscape. The beauty is staggering. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think it's just, you can see this come together in all of your work. I mean, not just the books that you've written about those particular skills, but, but in, in your book on, on Done, just the life experience and the joy you take in living just sings off the page. You've also written a play that's been on in Edinburgh and was off-Broadway too. Yes, it was called Life According to Saki and it was based on the short stories of the, the, the writer Saki who was killed in the First World War and they are dark and funny and vertiginous and strange and quite bitter but also often... They have a generosity to them, and I love his work. And so the play was just based on on my love of him. That was really fascinating, to see something you've written performed by living people to make it literally live. That that was a fascination. Let's come to your winning book now because everybody is raving about it. It's won this enormous prize. It is set now to go to the top of the non-fiction bestseller lists. It will sell and sell, and it absolutely deserves to. But why choose John Donne? So I think my pitch for John Donne would be this. He is difficult. He is famously difficult. But I was hoping with the book to offer people the tools to unpick him because he is a little bit like cracking a safe and there is endless gold inside. He lived at a time where he understood horror. The Renaissance was a brutal time to be alive for all the glorious gilded quality of the literature. His family, Catholic, in a Protestant time, were persecuted. He probably saw his great uncle hung, drawn and quartered. He lost his brother. He lost six children. He lost his wife. He knew horror and sorrow. And yet he insisted throughout his life relentlessly, furiously on awe, on astonishment at living, on on the great beauty of the human body, on the idea that, you know, 
sex and and love might together be a sort of semaphore for the human living infinite. He had a sense of us as wondrous. And I think to read his poetry, especially his love poetry, if you will just persevere with it, that little bit of extra time it takes to, to get used to the tone, to get used to the voice, to understand, he offers you a vision of what it might be like to love, which is so rich and so nuanced and salutes the strangeness in us with such tenacity and flair. He sort of liberates you from the sense that you should be neat and predictable in your love. He he liberates us from anti-intellectualism. He is a kind of that burning original. That is the thing he offers us. And of course, he went to prison for his love. He did. So famously, John Donne, in his 20s, late 20s, he married a young woman called Anne Moore. And she was the niece of his employer, Sir Thomas Edgerton, who was the keeper of the Great Seal, one of the most important men in in England. And she was above him socially. Her father was Sir George Moore. She came from a beautiful, stately home in, in the south of England. And Dunn was building for himself a reputation as one of the smartest men of the age. But he was a Catholic. The family had lost almost all of their money. And he, you know, a family of jailbirds. And they married in secret. No one knows how he persuaded her to. She was 17, which was not an unusual age at the time. And I think he thought that there would be trouble when it was discovered. We think he had no idea how much trouble. He was thrown in jail, and not even in the Tower of London, which had a sort of glamour to it, in the Fleet Prison, which was a a debtor's prison, where the floor was said to be carpeted with lice. And, And... his life sort of collapsed. He was fired. When, in the end, he he was allowed to return, he was let out of prison and he was allowed to take Anne with him, but they had nowhere to go. They had no home. They had no money. So certainly, this sort of great leap of love by perhaps the greatest love poet of our time was, was a disaster. And I mean, he, he came back from that. And that's the thing about him is he kept reinventing himself. Take us through some of his various iterations. Exactly. So this is why the book is called The Transformations of John Donne, because he was so many things. He was a sort of wonderkind. He was a, a Catholic. He was a sailor on the high seas, a kind of legalised pirate, a privateer for Queen Elizabeth, not a very successful one. He was a politician, not a very successful one. He was a, a lawyer, a law student. He was then a Jailbird, he was a lover. He was then a Protestant. At some point, and we do not know when, he converted. One of the great debates around Dunn's scholarship is was it a real conversion or not? You know, was it that he realised he wouldn't make much progress as a Catholic and he understood that he had a brilliant mind, but he understood that it would be no good to him? Or was it a real conversion? People did, it was not that uncommon to convert at the time. And then, of course, he became a priest. And then he became the Dean of St Paul's Cathedral one of the most powerful clerics of his age and one of the most famous. And when he died, he was famous not as a poet, but as a preacher. There's an amazing account of when he was in his middle age, in his late 40s. He was incredibly beautiful his whole life. It's it's probably quite key to his success with women. He was gorgeous. But by the time he, um, he was in his middle age, he had a sort of stately dignity and I had a big beard. And he was preaching at one of the chapels at the Inns of Court and people flocked to see him in such a crush that there's this quite dry, laconic little uh, report of it where it says two or three men were taken up dead for the time, which doesn't mean dead, it just means 
unconscious. And as far as we can tell, because usually they would record if he stopped, he didn't stop. Just kept <laughs> preaching as, you know, these bloodied men were carried off. Quite ruthless. He had a ruthless streak. Yes. So how much research is there out there? Because it seems to me you've done, you've done something perhaps a little like Hilary Mantel, where you've gathered all these little bits of information and, and had to kind of put them together in a way that absolutely works. How much information is there? So this is the thing. If you are a Dunn scholar, you have to make your peace with the idea that you will have to enjoy trying to piece together the gaps. We know a lot about bits of his life, but he had a belief that essentially the letters he received from his friends were almost a part of them. So when they died, he burned the letters. And so we have only one half of the correspondence. We have the correspondence that he wrote to other people, which his son published after his death. But his son was a raging snob who changed the names of the addressees of the letters so that it sounded like he was writing to, like, lords and dukes. And in fact, he was just writing to his friends from university. John Dunn Jr., not a great guy. (laughs) But you put all that together somehow. You've you've found a way through. And the way you... I mean, you talked about his great beauty earlier. And everyone I know who's read the book come away feeling we are a little bit in love with him. So this was what I hoped so much, that, that we would reckon he was worth being in love with, that he is worth your attention and your love, because he was deeply faulted. He had a a misogynistic streak that would be foolish to ignore. Although, as I say in the book, trying someone for misogyny on our own terms would, of course, just be anachronistic and stupid. But even for his time, there is a, a, a bitterness in some of his writing about women. But there is also a marvel to it. There is a sense that he... He was a person who understood a great deal about us. He was able to hold love and dread in the same hand. He was able to sort of bring the conflicting impulses of the human heart and look at them both steadily and with a certain ferocity of love. And he is worth loving. And, of course, you know, there's that thing that we all know Greater men than Shakespeare or Dunn have lived and died in silence in the cotton fields. But of the writers who we are lucky enough that they laid down what they knew and it survived the waste of time, he is one of those for whom I am most grateful. He suffered ill health for much of his life. Tell us about that aspect. So he lost his brother to plague. Henry died and it was a little bit John Donne's fault, perhaps. Henry was harbouring a priest in his room. He was caught. He was thrown into jail. The priest was hung, drawn and courted. And in the prison, within days, Henry caught and died of plague. Dunn, as far as we know, never had plague, but he lived at a time when plague returned over and over. And he did have a thing which we now believe to be a thing called recurring fever, which has sort of typhoid-like symptoms. About 50% of the people who got it did die. It had exactly the same symptoms as plague. So he will have thought every time that he was ill that plague was coming for him in the way it had come for his boy. And then also he just suffered from the very real aches of being a renaissance soul. You know, he had teeth that plagued him and stomach and vomiting and earache and throat ache. And then there was the great dogged horror in his heart, he was suicidal 
For much of his life, he wrote the first full-length treatise in English on suicide. He understood what it would be to feel the pull of, he says, the pull of my own sword. And the book, it was transgressive and dangerous at the time to argue it, argues that Christ was in some ways a suicide and therefore there are a small number of very nuanced cases in which suicide is not a sin, which would have got him in, in real trouble with authorities had it been published in his lifetime. And... You know, he understood this this drive towards self-slaughter, which is one of the reasons that I find his later work, when he has been through such horror and still he is insisting on joy. He says, he says, it is too little to call a man a little world, because compared unto a man, the world itself is a dwarf. He says, you know, a single man is larger than the world itself. And in one of his sermons, he's writing about laughter. And he says, those who forbid laughter, like St. Basil, not, not a fun guy, he says, that is a stupidity. That is a contempt. I love that. And yet, I mean, as you say, this great sadness, his wife died, the love of his life. So Anne died in childbirth, their 12th baby. Oh. The baby died also. And she was... In her very early 30s, her birth date is a little bit difficult to know, but she was probably 32, 34. She, I think about a lot. We know very little about her. Most biographers have discussed her very little because there is very little to say for sure. But one of the things I wanted to do for the book was look at other women so I could work out what kind of life she would have had, other contemporaneous women and to unpick what we can work out from the letters. There are no letters by or to her, but there are some that mention her. And what a thing it must have been. She took a greater risk than he did when she married him. There are accounts of women who married against their father's consent, having their heads bashed in by their fathers and, you know, bleeding from the, they call the pate, the skull. And then she lost baby after baby, and she was pregnant or recovering from pregnancy her entire adult life. And... It used to be thought until very recently that maybe because people lost so many babies, maybe they didn't mind so much. But then if you find the accounts by women who have lost babies, the grief is a chorus, it's a howl. So she knew such sorrow. And then she must have been in such physical pain. And then she died. And it's it's difficult to think of her because she took this great flying leap of faith in marrying him, of, of I, one hopes of joy. If you read the love poetry that was written after the wedding, poems like The Sun Rising or Love's Growth, which is, it has this pun. It goes, I scarce believe my love to be so pure as I had thought it was because it doth endure vicissitude and season as the grass. Methinks I lied all winter when I swore my love was infinite, if spring make it more. And that more is for Anne Moore. That's a poem that was different mm. for her. But then the love poetry in the end does tail off. He had flirtations with other women. He spent a lot of time in London, away from her, away from domesticity. He was not a good father. He was a man who tried to escape the domestic space. Her story is in some ways a suggestion that love is not enough. His poems are also very 
erotic. Yes. And you, you point out in the book, though, that, that when he was writing those poems before his marriage, mm. that they may not actually have been based on real experience. Right, exactly this. Like, this is when people say, what would you ask John Donne? This is one of the things I would love to ask. How much of that was real? Because the impression he gives, if you read the poetry, of like a great terror through of women, you know, the, the, the gadabout rake of, of the Renaissance age. I don't know. <laughs> women of his own class were very carefully protected in terms of virginity. He's very scathing about prostitution. I mean, we don't know. But he may well have been a lover in imagination only or, you know, just a very limited amount of experience by the time he married Anne. Who knows how much. But a lot of those poems, poems like The Flea, which imagine a flea crawling over a woman's body and it says it first sucked me and now sucks thee. Suck me first and now sucks thee. It, it's a, the idea of like they're in our flea our two bloods mingled be. It's very unlikely he was writing that for a woman. He was probably writing it for his mates in a kind of society of lots of boys writing these kind of raucous, erotic poetry. Mm. Tell me about your writing process, because I think this was the third attempt you <laughs> yes. had at the book. <laughs> this, was a, this was a long, long journey. I am so grateful to my friends and family for putting up with me for the years that I've been working on this book. The first version I wrote was too academic. And it was, there's an anxiety when you're writing nonfiction that you in some ways want to put everything you know in it, in part out of anxiety that it might be interesting to someone, but also in a way to sort of prove that you've done your homework. So I deleted that. And then the second version was getting closer, but it felt it was it was bigger and it felt too exhaustive. And what I wanted really with the book, I want to suggest that there is... There was this mind that is so worth your attention and the things that he might teach you might might shift your inner life a little bit. And so in the end, I try to inflict on myself the discipline of the question with each chapter, why does this matter? Not, not you know it, but why does it matter? Mm. Why would it matter to someone else? Especially, you know, someone reading it on the tube on the Northern Line. That was one of the reasons it was such a long, long, long process. I'd like to read you some of your own work. This is you writing about Dan. You say, from failure and penury to recognition within his lifetime as one of the finest minds of his age, one whose work, if allowed under your skin, can offer joy so violent it kicks the metal out of your knees and sorrow large enough to eat you. It's just beautiful. And you know what? I think that describes the book. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. It really does. Now, this prize, obviously, it's wonderful to win it. It means great things for your career. It also comes with £50,000. And you made an extraordinary announcement at the awards ceremony. And you referred back to, in fact, one of Dunn's poems. So... So I I had already decided that in the incredibly unlikely event that I won, on the grounds that it's not money I've earned, I wanted to pass it on. So I'm giving half of it to a brilliant climate change charity that works with communities affected by climate change, but also in a bid to create more sustainable modes of life at quite a big scale called Blue Ventures. And then the other half will go to a, a refugee charity done when he was near the end of his life, he was eight years from the end of his life, but he believed that he was dying. He had one of his many recurring sicknesses. And he wrote very swiftly in a matter of 
10 days. They're known as the devotions upon emergent occasions. They're kind of somewhere between prose and poetry. And in it, he writes the famous, famous quote, you know, no man is an island. Every man's death diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind. And I have always thought that if we could not just believe that, but salute it and embrace it, this idea that we we only take our meaning from each other. We are interlinked beyond that which we are able to acknowledge. In the knowledge of that, it seemed like passing on the money, other people will make far greater use of it than I could. Catherine Randall, thank you so much. Super Infinite, The Transformations of John Donne is by Catherine Rundle. It's published by Faber and Faber. It's the winner of the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction 2022 and it's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers thanks to the production team of Nora Hall and Christy O'Grady. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>